At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legends of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And it's always uh, great to be able to do this show in tandem with you, John. So how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm happy. I got my COVID shot. So just waiting now for round two. So life is good. And have you come out of your cocoon? No, I'm not taking any chances. Well, you got the shot. Come on. Once you get the shot, you know, that's like armor, isn't it? Only half. And it's only 95% at the end of the two shots. So you still have to be careful. Yeah. Well, I know that. That Again, it's interesting because the more I read and the more I listen to all of the news media stuff, the more fiction there is than sometimes fact. And there is a false perception that if you get these shots, that you're bulletproof and you aren't. And we preach it all the time in aviation that just because you know something and you know how to do something doesn't mean that you can be complacent with regard to executing it because there'll be things that you miss if you're just not on top of it. And again, I'd rather be safe than sorry because, you know, in this particular instance, being sorry could end up getting you in the hospital. You know, I don't know if it's just me or not, but I've got this feeling that complacency has crept in all over the place in aviation. I see it when people do lousy pre-flights. I know we've talked about this before on, a, on this program, but just this past week, I see people just not, they're walking around their airplane, but they're looking up in the sky or they're, they're chatting with the their fuel truck driver, and they're supposed to be watching him also. It's just like, ho-hum, he'll do his job, and, you know, I'll walk around. The airplane was fine. Coming in, it'll be fine going out. I just see too much of it. Yep, and one of the issues, of course, is that we tend to put a tacit trust in others that they're doing their job, so basically I can skate and not really do my job completely. You know, I don't know how many people I see and I've run across 
where the fuel truck shows up at the airplane, the pilot's in either in the FBO or in the restaurant while they're fueling their airplane. I always stand out there. I don't want them putting Jet A into my airplane or ab gas into the, the turboprop that's sitting out there. We've had a number of those accidents, which you and I are going to talk about in upcoming episodes where there was a Piper Aerostar, you know, and the the pilot's standing right there in this particular instance and has them put in the wrong fuel. And of course, the line boy who was pumping the gas kind of had an inkling that it was the wrong fuel, but he was, you know, abiding yes, I remember orders. Right. He asked the pilot, you sure? Yeah. And the pilot said, yep. And rather than say, I don't think so, he just dutifully did it. Next thing you know, the airplane crashes off the end of the runway and the pilot gets killed. So there is this complacency. There is this sometimes attitude of overconfidence. I know what I'm talking about. Don't try and tell me what I need to do. And we've had some accidents recently and some more general aviation accidents. We had an F-33 Bonanza that crashed into a house in South Carolina, killed the pilot. And it was just ironic because that same pilot in this airplane that he ended up crashing and getting killed in, about a year or so prior to this, he and a co-pilot were the first Iranian pilots. He had grown up, or not grown up, but he had come to the States, trained here, worked here, lived here. They flew that bonanza around the world, and that's no easy feat. And so now, on an approach, you crash into a house. One, you know, logic says that that shouldn't have happened. But two, it's going to be up to the NTSB, of course, to try and ferret out all facts, conditions, and circumstances. The problem is, as you and I have been whacking them, the NTSB, for the last, what, eight, nine, ten months, you don't go out to the accident site and you don't collect all the volatile evidence that's going to disappear when they uh, clean up the uh, the wreckage, you may never know. Yeah, it's such a tragedy the way they're treating general aviation. I mean, it really is a shame. And speaking of general aviation, I'll remind all our listeners, but today's show is being brought to you by Avemco Insurance. So if you're in need of insurance, Give Avemco a call and mention that you'll listen to Flight Safety Detectives and it'll get you a 5% discount. Yep, and they have a lot of other tools. You go on their website, they take you to these little online seminars and stuff and you get through it. And I'll tell you, you know, I go through those just as a good refresher for some stuff I already know. Occasionally, I'll learn something new or something that I've forgotten from way back when and it's always you know good to just go in there in your idle time it's not like you have to spend hours but you have to be proactive you got to stay ahead of it and you got to keep your head plugged into flying even when you're not flying and during this period of covid john where people aren't flying for not, not it's not just days at a time it's weeks and months at a time and then just to walk out to the airport, open the hangar door, and expect that you're going to get right back on that horse and ride isn't necessarily the case. And so when you look at a BEMCO and you look at what AOPA does, the same thing, there are these lessons on there. They're online lessons. They're great refreshers when you're done. Um, you get a certificate. And as I remember, right, I believe they also meet the uh, quals for your WINGS program. 
And of course, the FAA has a great program for the WINGS program. Yes, they do meet qualifications for the WINGS program. So if you're interested in this insurance, give them a call, 888-879-0389. And again, mention Flight Safety Detectives for a 5% discount. And if you want to go on the web, it's simple, Avemco, A-V-E-M-C-O.com. And if you do uh, backslash flight safety, you don't even have to tell them about flight safety. Detectives will automatically take you to the right place. And I think, John, since our last episode, and I believe that, you know, we had some discussion about 737 that crashed in Indonesia, the investigation as of this particular podcast is still ongoing. They're recovering wreckage. They only recovered the flight data recorder as we are recording this. They only had recovered the flight data recorder. The the internal components of the cockpit voice recorder apparently were thrown out, destroyed, damaged, whatever word you want to use. They weren't actually in the the CBR housing, and they're still looking now for the CBR. But you and I talked about our concerns about maintenance, whether it's a 737 MAX coming out of storage or any other airplane coming out of storage. This particular airplane, an old Continental Airlines airplane, sold off, moved to Asia, and of course, Indonesia and is being operated there, this airplane had gone into storage. And I know that you would have expressed some concerns. And I saw that you had posted recently on Facebook about typically how much time as far as manpower hours are concerned going into revitalizing an airplane coming out of storage. It really does. Uh, a thousand hours is not uncommon. And some of them have taken more. And a few of them that may have been operating because we were flying some airplanes. They were grounded commercially, but they weren't fully grounded. They were still operating some airplanes around the country, so that not all of them required that much time. But the ones that did sit for the full duration are getting about a 1,000 man hours to put them back in the air. And that is significant. And especially the electronics. I mean, we talk about the fuel and uh, having the jet fuel grows uh, a fungus or, or bugs, as some of us call it. It looks like jellyfish inside the tank. It's cloudy. If the fuel's not treated, which most airlines treat in this country, I don't know what they do outside of the country. You can have the potential, uh, some contamination to your hydraulic systems because there are vents sometimes on the top of the tank. You don't know what kind of condition that some of these uh, operators have left their airplanes in. And not to mention the pedo system. We've seen plenty of problems with that. The pedo or the static, either one where you get little bugs that crawl inside there and make a nest and block things up. So it's a real challenge to stay on top of it. That's why, uh, you know, some of the airlines, I know American Airlines actually had mechanics that would go and run those airplanes wherever they were. They'd have teams of people to keep the engines running every three or four days. They would just go out and start the engines and exercise everything all the systems on the airplane. They didn't do that with every every airplane, but they did that with some, and it's probably the ones that they expected to bring back in for pilot training as soon as it was released. Remember, we had a dribble. This was going to end in midsummer, and then it was going to end in early fall, and then it was late fall. It just dribbled on and on and on. 
So they probably started that thought process early on, thinking they were going to get back in the air early, but that didn't happen. Well, you know, and, and when you talk about systems, you also have to talk not only about the avionics, because sitting long periods of time, they're electronic. Things break, things, you know, dry out, things stop working. And then, of course, you got to look at the electromechanical devices. I remember, and you and I have had this conversation, that this airplane, not this particular airplane, but the 737-500, back when it was being operated by Continental and then moving forward, you know, there was an auto throttle problem. And, of course, it was addressed by a service bulletin. And as you so fondly reminded me, uh, the fact that uh, all airlines don't do all service bulletins. They may change them to an engineering order. They don't do all the service bulletins. And so now you got a, an airplane that's over in an airline where you and I have talked about maintenance deficiencies in that part of the world. And some of these service bulletins, while they can be handled in service here in the United States, I believe a little better just because of the oversight that we have. We've talked about the lack of oversight in various parts of the world. And if these service bulletins aren't taken care of or at least examined to see how relevant they are, they could end up being the basis for an accident. And I would hope that the investigative team is looking into that over in Indonesia right now with this 737 aircraft. You know, one of the things that I I pick up with my ears when I hear these uh, investigators from wherever they are, but particularly out of the country, when they start saying very early on something is right. And I was a bit taken back and I focused on that lead investigator over there who said virtually the first day the engines were fine, the engines were operating. And he said that repeatedly over the next day or two. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's way too early to say that. You don't have the recorders yet. And he was saying that before the recorders were out. And I was saying, you know, what's going on here? So, I, you know, all of a sudden my mind is going to focus on the engine without any real justification. But it's just the way they said that that makes me think, you know, here goes the cover-up again. And of course, we're spring-loaded in this country right now for cover-ups because that's, that's all we're hearing. Right, we hear it from one side or the other side, but it's uh... well. the The other thing you know you bring up, John, is the fact that they're trying to get out ahead of it. They're saying all of this stuff, just like they say, "Well, there's nothing wrong with the airplane." I really think that you've got a crew that one. You really got to look at their training, their experience, their background. If they've been sitting on the shelf for a while because of COVID, what was done to bring them back up to to speed? Two, of course, with this aircraft, if there is some sort of mechanical issue with the aircraft, did this crew recognize it in time? Did they handle it as required or in an appropriate, timely manner? All of these things. It's going to be interesting that if they say everything was good with the airplane, everything was good with our pilots, and then all of a sudden as they really get into this, like you were talking about with the engines. If there is an engine problem, are they going to come back and go, oops, we screwed up. <laughs> we saw that in Lion Air that they didn't. <laughs> right. No, it never happened. Lion Air, they, I mean, they you got to give them credit. They deflected all of their shortcomings 
away from that accident and kept the focus on the max. When there's a lot of problems, the chain of events in that accident, you know, started almost a month earlier in China when they started to have maintenance problems that were never repaired. So three and a half weeks, four weeks, whatever it was, they carried those airplanes, moved them along, kept them going in and out of maintenance stations and never fixed the underlying problems. But yet when the crash happens, they ignored that totally. And to this day, you and I dissected that report. We talked about the maintenance issues that were in existence a month before that accident that were not properly corrected. The airplane was allowed to fly for, I forgot how many hours now, but it was sick all the time. And again, to this day, if you ever mention that accident, nobody will ever talk about the maintenance history. They'll go right to Boeing and they'll say it was bad Boeing bad airplane, bad design, cover up, love in with the FAA. And the facts don't support for this accident. And that's where people, and again, this is the problem I have, is that people muddy the water. We saw it up on the hill where they muddied the water. You have to dissect the facts of the accident to find out what the cause of the accident was. The fact that all of this, quote, other stuff was going on between the FAA and Boeing had nothing to do with that direct cause or even as a contributing factor because that 737 MAX is an airplane and an airplane is an airplane is an airplane. And if you've been trained with the basic knowledge that if that trim wheel starts moving, I don't care if it's a 172 or 737. If the trim wheel starts moving and you're not commanding it and Charlie's not commanding it sitting in the other seat, then you got to do something to stop it, fly the airplane and figure it out. It's very simple. It doesn't take rocket science. And it's going to be real interesting to see in this latest accident, was there a, even if it was a mechanical malfunction or failure, was it something that was insidious? Was it something that was obvious? And did the crew react or act properly in trying to correct it, mitigate it, or eliminate whatever the problem was? You left out one important one. Did they even recognize it at all? Were they so complacent that they didn't even recognize it? And we've seen that in how many accidents? Buffalo, New York with Kogan up in Buffalo. We've seen it in airliners. We see it in the Northwest that overflew Minneapolis. Were they sleeping or were they actually doing something else like they said and just so complacent the airplane's gonna take them there, they weren't even paying attention. You've got to stay engaged. We see all over the place messages to our kids about texting and driving, right? Then they're driving a car, but they're not engaged in driving the car. They're on the phone, most likely texting because kids today don't seem to talk on the phone and, you know, ends up with not getting in an accident of some kind. Yeah. And one of the things that we harp on as investigators and we're looking as safety advocates is the fact that we have really developed this investigative prowess to go in and look at the airline's organizational culture, their safety culture. Where 
in the whole grand scheme of things, does safety reside in that particular airline? And we go in and we do a corporate culture study. We dissect them. We want to know what the message from the, the, the head guy is at the company, whether it's the president, CEO, or whoever is this supposed to be the safety advocate. Is that message filtering down? Is it enforced? Are people recognizing hazards? Are they looking at all of these things like you're talking about, John, with regard to complacency and distraction and those things that could put pilots, mechanics, management, passengers in peril because they're not doing their job. And when we look at this organizational culture or with this corporate culture, we tend to pair it along with professionalism. And of course, the board has taken more of a look at this thing called, quote, professionalism, which I still don't understand what they use as the, the baseline for it because I can challenge that all day long. But if we use professionalism in the same regard as corporate culture or safety culture that we look at, is it spread throughout the entire industry? I know that you have been a big advocate about you know, corporate culture or safety culture in the maintenance hangar. Do we have a safety culture or an organizational culture in the management office of the organization? And taking it one step further, a lot of it is pointed at big airlines or charter companies or business aviation. But what about me? I've got an airplane. I fly the airplane. Should I have some sort of organizational or safety culture mentality when I operate my aircraft so that I recognize the hazards, I set the limits, I set the boundaries so that I don't go out and put myself, my family, or anybody outside that airplane in a position of, of jeopardy. That's going to be one of the hottest tasks to accomplish. We've been looking at that for a long time. I mean, mechanics work in onesies, twosies. They don't work in thirties and forties. Pilots of onesies, twosies in the cockpit of uh, small airplanes, mostly one on real general aviation airplanes. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to, it's going to take something like the FAA to actually have a virtual buddy, a virtual co-pilot or something like that. And we're getting there. I mean, I've just, just uh, in the last couple of days, I was reading about the AI, artificial intelligence program that they've put into the U-2, the spy plane that we used to have. Well, we, it's still sort of a spy plane, but they just don't go to over Russia anymore because they'll shoot them down. But they're still out there flying. They've put the co-pilot as a computer, and they've been flying that airplane around, and it's actually been doing a better job than the pilot's which is what I just read. So they're looking at it. You know, those are pre-staged uh, programs and assumptions are made. So it's probably easy for the computer to better the human mind in that case. But I don't know about in a very dynamic situation with things changing a mile a minute that they can program a computer that can take that. But we'll see. I mean, it's just amazing what, what has gone on. But a, a virtual co-pilot for assessor operator would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. Well, you know, when we talk about corporate culture, we were fortunate because uh, one of the things about this show is that we have some great, great listeners that always come back at us with some good questions and, and interesting points of view for us to, to address. 
And we did get an email most recently from uh, apparently a new listener. And she said, I just found your podcast recently and I'm loving it. Thanks for sharing your unique viewpoints. She was asking if she could, if we could address the organizational culture at the NTSB and how it's evolved over the years. She uh, cited in one of her comments about the NTSB's culture, she said that it's interesting to see how culture shifts post-disaster until another accident snaps it back. And that is she was referencing it to an airline or even in this case, NASA, who's had multiple failures that have led to fatal accidents. But through the investigative process, through a change of organizational culture, things have improved. Unfortunately, she doesn't really think that that same thing has happened at the NTSB because apparently she was watching a show about an accident that you're very familiar with, and that was United Airlines Flight 811 coming out of Honolulu back to the States that had a, was it explosive or just a rapid decompression when the uh, cargo door let go? No, it's explosive decompression. Yeah, the door came open, broke the stops, kept on coming up and slammed into the fuselage. It happened so fast that the upper fuselage still contained pressurization, even though you got this great big door open below the floor. All that fuselage, the size of the door, blew out, and it took nine passengers with it. I believe the number was nine. Yeah, because it was a pretty graphic accident because they went out, and it just so happened that one of the engines close mounted to the fuselage ended up getting struck with uh, both debris and, and passengers, unfortunately. Right. Right. It was pretty uh, dr- pretty dramatic hole in the side of that airplane when it came back. In this email from our listener, she's asking, you know, the fact that the board had all, you know, had done the investigation, basically had come out with all of this evidence to support what they believed was the probable cause. And she says, and even after having overwhelming evidence to the true cause of the accident, the NTSB refused to change its report. Would that still happen today? What causes the NTSB to evolve and change? I find it frustrating how the NTSB recommendations aren't required to be complied with or completed, in many cases only recommended. Well, I think when you and I have dissected uh, the board and how we work, or I should say how the NTSB works, the safety board is a non-regulatory agency, so their only method of making change in aviation is through the safety recommendation process and having it doesn't have a force of law, but it has the force of the public behind it wanting change. And it really is up to that public driving force that over you know a period of time, if we're seeing the same types of accidents, it's peer pressure, public pressure that really creates that change. You know, when I first came to the board, before I came to the board, I often thought that the NTSB should be able to directly impact regulations. But then after being there and and understanding the NTSB process 
as compared to the FAA process, then I, I changed my mind. I believe the recommendation process is probably the right one. What is a problem is the disconnect between when those recommendations go over the fence to the FAA and how they're handled. They're not oftentimes vigorously handled and vetted. They don't immediately say, okay, let's take a look at what the NTSB has said. It goes through a slow, very slow, slow process, sometimes years before they even get around to it. And you lose the interest of the industry when you take too long. The NTSB loses it when they take too long to get accident reports out, or at least some initial findings. And then it's lost again at the FAA. And I think maybe some of it that's by design. But in any event, some of the initiative is lost, and those recommendations either get severely limited or not even acted on. Good morning, you're on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi. And some of them are even going outdated because by the time they finally get them out, change has occurred. And I remember back when you and I were both at the board, what, this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the RAND study was done at the NTSB. They came in and dissected the NTSB, its policies, its processes, basically its organizational culture. They talk, I remember them coming in and interviewing me and a number of other folks in various levels of management, dissecting the agency to see how we did what we did. And they made a number of recommendations about how to address and, and change and enhance or improve, you know, things that you just talked about, John. And, you know, having gone back and looked at that report recently, after we got this email from our listener, I'm just stunned because I read this stuff and I'm, this is well over, this is 20 years old, it's 21 years old now. I'm reading this going, all of this applies today. They haven't changed. They never implement, implemented any of the RAN report. Remember, I mean, it was a change of administration that came out in late 99, 2000. It was a change in administration and a change in the chairman. And it just never was implemented. There's a lot of good things in that in that report. And if any of our listeners are interesting and interested in the report, if you go on Google and just punch in NTSB space RAND, R-A-N-D, you'll get the whole 300 or 400 page report. Yeah. And when you read it, it's, it, I mean, it was flashbacks for me because I'm reading this and I remember talking to the folks that came in to do the interviews and telling them some of the issues that as an, an investigator, both in the field and then running major investigations along with my colleagues, the issues that whether it was trying to manage a large investigation with a very small number of folks or just the process and that kind of thing. Of course, I've always been an advocate of getting out. And I think that was one of the things that kind of torqued some of the folks that I worked for when I was at the board is that I was out giving so many safety presentations during my tenure with the board, just like I do now. And they didn't like it. And I kept believing and telling them, we need to be out there. We have to interact with these people. I mean, the NTSB, by its very nature, is a reactive agency with a proactive mission statement. 
And to be proactive, you got to learn and see what's going on out there so that you can bring it in-house and maybe get ahead of it. Start to see trends as they develop in accidents and incidents. And in fact, the RAND report even mentions, it says, the safety board must demonstrate a greater spirit of cooperation with outside entities without jeopardizing its independence. The NTSB must be an open and impartial agent pursuing the cause of aviation. The only way you're going to do that is to get out of the office. You got to go interact. You got to go see what's going on. And with these accidents, general aviation and transport category aviation, and now into rockets and everything else that the board's going to be responsible for, you don't have a subject matter expert at the NTSB who's an avionics expert, at least up until... (laughs) The last time I checked, which was pretty recent, they didn't have anybody with avionics yet. We have all this complex avionics in the aircraft, both general aviation and transport category airplanes. And we depend, and I shouldn't say we because I don't work there anymore. The board depends highly on the manufacturers to educate them, troubleshoot, and try and find problems. Well, the board's mission, one of its many missions, is to make sure that if you do have these parties, there's got to be a system of checks and balances so that they're not trying to you know, snow you a little bit. And you know this, John, that if the board doesn't have that background and you tell them, well, this is the way you do it. This is the process. We've done it this way for 20 years. If there's nobody asking questions to object to it or have any information that says you're wrong, then guess what? They buy it. Yep. And, you know, right after I came to the board, I pushed hard and I had one of our engineers, again, I'm doing the same thing you did, one of the engineers at the board go out to a major airline and be there during a heavy maintenance visit. And the inspection that occurs right after they open up the airplane and they actually gave him a a flashlight and a mirror with the job cards and he had to go out with the inspector and do the job. And it was 747. And later on, not that much later on, we had TWA 800 crash. And way down the road, a year, year and a half later, that particular engineer told me how valuable to him that experience was with the airplane because he understood what he was looking at when he got inside the airplane. And most people don't realize it, including manufacturers, that they don't have, they may have built the airplane, but they don't have the expertise. When we had the crash in Pittsburgh, U.S. Air in Pittsburgh, we had a crew of inspectors. These are mechanics that their full-time job is looking at the airplanes. We had inspectors doing what we call dumpster diving and standing in the dumpster, pulling out the aluminum pieces, the pieces from the wreckage that were brought back from the site and just to see them holding up a piece and looking at it and turning it around and looking at it and then turn around and say, wheel well, and get the next one and say, wing. In fact, Boeing actually had four or five people that were standing on the side watching that. They couldn't believe it. They were engineers on the airplane, and they couldn't believe these guys could identify these pieces of the airplane so small. And I know you saw that same thing, that same process in ValueJet down in, in the Everglades when you You had to put it together. You bring the maintenance people in because they live with those airplanes. They they can just look at them very often and tell you where that piece was from. And 
one of the others, I mean, there's a number of things in this Rand report. And like I said, it was like flashback reading this thing because I look at what's going on today. I look at all the things that you and I've talked about and been critical of with the NTSB and the fact that they aren't doing their job and the job they do do isn't necessarily thorough and methodical. But one of the biggest things that I've been just harping on since I was with the board and now is that the probable causes that come out to these accidents, especially general aviation accidents, are worthless. I mean, you don't even need to leave the office. Pilot lost control for unknown reasons. Engine failed for unknown reasons. Pilot, real easy ones to write off. And the RAN report said, the statement of causation is the safety board's most controversial output. It is crucial that this statement be as clear and complete as possible. The NTSB should view the probable cause statement not simply as the final investigative word of an accident, but in a larger context as a signpost supporting future aviation safety goals. To accomplish this, the NTSB should move away from simplistic one-line probable cause statements and instead consistently adopt a comprehensive statement that reflects the reality that a modern aircraft accident is rarely the result of a single error or failure. And I live by that. When I wrote reports, I put in a lot of stuff. I'm going to read you a report, probable cause, that just came out within the last six months of a very complex, I mean, it's a Cessna citation, 560 citation. It's a complex airplane. All of the facts, conditions, and circumstances surrounding this accident were complex. They weren't properly ferreted out by the board in its investigation. There's a lot of stuff that either they didn't know or didn't bother to get to know. And in this accident, it was a takeoff accident to IMC. The airplane wasn't in IMC very long and came screaming out of the sky after the pilot stalled the airplane at about 3,700 feet above the ground, and they ended up killing you know five people in this accident. I mean, there was a lot of work to be done. I know a lot about this accident because uh, I have a, a lot of familiarity with this accident and the work that I'm doing. But after all this, all this work that the board supposedly did, and there is a lot of fact, conditions, and circumstances that haven't been considered. The probable cause of this accident, the National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this accident to be, quote, the pilot's loss of airplane control due to spatial disorientation during initial climb and instrument meteorological conditions, end quote. That's it. You didn't need to leave the office to figure that out. It's obvious the pilot lost control. It's obvious that the airplane was in meteor instrument meteorological conditions. Now, the thing that I will argue all day long, and I can't do it right this second, but the spatial disorientation part doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because this particular pilot had just flown into that airport in a different airplane, but it was a complex airplane shot a successful ILS approach to get in there. So how is it that all of a sudden they weren't disoriented on the approach in a different airplane, but on the takeoff in this airplane, all of a sudden you get spatial disorientation and can't fly? You know, I, went, I wonder how much not having the doctor on staff 
has hindered some of the investigations from the NTSB? Oh, I'm sure it's hindered a lot, John. I mean, there's a lot of things, especially with physiological things that are going on with people, whether it's medical stuff, drugs, alcohol, because of the legalization of marijuana and stuff like that. And now what's going to happen with COVID? Who's going to be looking at that to see if there are any residual effects of somebody that may have had COVID? Because we, you know, you watch TV every day. And they're still talking about people that are still suffering immensely from fatigue and, and the effects of, of COVID that they had six, eight, ten months ago. Yes. I mean, I, I, I use the services of that doctor on uh, accidents to help me understand and also to uh, clear up some issues that I had with accident reports that staff had made statements uh, without consulting the doctor. So I think that uh, that was a big loss when they let him go without replacing him. I mean, these are the kinds of things. And this RAND report, I mean, now that I've downloaded it again, you know, we've talked about it on this show, the party system. That is the board's ability to bring in subject matter experts from the manufacturers to assist them in the investigation. The RAND report addresses what needs to be done today because of the changes with manufacturers and the fact that they don't have the staffing they had any, uh, that they had before COVID, they've reduced their workforce. They don't have dedicated safety personnel that can go out and respond to every accident like they used to before COVID. And the board's not even going out. So now the question is, how is this party system, how is the use of subject matter experts going to work? It's got to change. And you're going to have to have people that are more knowledgeable than the investigators and let them go out and do the investigation if the board's not going to go out because they don't know how to use a biohazard suit or whatever the hell it is that's keeping them from going out under COVID. But there are other people. I'm going out on accidents for clients. The board's not going out, but I'm going out. I've gotten sick and I've been traveling for the last 10 months of this pandemic. There's ways to do it safely. And you've traveled. I know that you don't travel as much as I've been traveling. But as long as you employ those safety protocols, there's no excuse for you not to be able to do your job. Yes. And board has to make a decision, too. You know, they get cited. We just talked about the, the engineer that I was able to get inside an airplane. But across the board, the investigators, we hire them. And then we hang them up on the tree say, look at our investigator, look at all his credentials, and immediately those credentials start to become outdated. They get stale. So now by the time you become an investigator in charge in IIC, you've been there 10 years, and your qualifications are now 10 years old. You haven't refreshed them because there is no ongoing training program within the NTSB. And I was blessed in, in a bad way, but I was blessed because... I was trained as a field investigator, and when I started getting involved in working majors, I worked with some of the, the most knowledgeable guys you could possibly work for. A lot of them were written up in safety books, and they had it. They did it. And because of the frequency of the accidents, there was never a need for any formal training because it was all on-the-job training, which was the best kind of training you could get. But now we haven't had a major accident where – more than 50 people have been killed in, in the United States. We haven't had a major accident like that since 2001 
we have had Colgan. We have had Combert. We did have Asiana. And we've had some serious incidents. But we haven't had the, quote, big major like we've had in 2001 with the loss of that A300 in New York when the tail came off. And like you said, John, these guys are getting stale. And while they think that they can just go out there and get it, you can't. You can't just pick it up because you get behind. The industry is moving and you're not. That's the speed of industry, the speed of business compared to the speed of government. And today, the electronics, you know what that, what that saying is? I forget how it goes. But your computer's outdated in a year and a half. There's something about the turnover electronics is so fast that, that your, your computer's outdated very quickly. I forget how. Well, in, in your case, by the time you finally figure out how to use it, it's already been outdated by five years, John. <laughs> that's true <laughs> it's true it'd be it would I, i'd laugh even more if it wasn't true but it is true i mean i say that all the time in my presentations when, when we talk to people out comes the airplane they got a whole new instrument panel and they take you to school and you go for for three or four weeks to learn how to fly the airplane and, and use that new panel and they said it's no different than your, your uh, microsoft operating system and you had Windows 7, and now you got Windows 10. Do you know all the pieces of Windows 10? Do you know all the ins and outs of how to navigate it before the next one, XP, comes along or whatever it is? I'm, I'm confusing the numbers there, but before the next system comes out? No, you don't. And they integrate them, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's just moving fast, too fast in many cases for the human mind to keep up with. And I know that along those same lines with the avionics, we're going to be looking at some accidents. You know, one of my biggest questions to you in the recent past has been pilots that they want to update their panels. So they have some old avionics and then they put the, the latest and greatest new avionics in and everybody says, oh, yeah, they work great together. They talk. They, they will do everything you need it to do. And you can have that mix mash of old and new guess what? It doesn't work that way. I'm working several accidents where nobody did a compatibility study to ensure that all the new stuff is going to interface properly with the old stuff and vice versa. And these are the kinds of complexities that are there that if you don't stay on top of it and you don't stay with it, it's like your example, John, you load Windows 10, you have some programs that you think should work. And next thing you know, they don't work. They aren't compatible. And until they do the bug fixes and the compatibility fixes, those programs are worthless. Well, you know what? The same thing happens with avionics. You, you can't you know, match and, and plug and play all these different avionics and expect that they're going to work as advertised. It just doesn't happen. And I've seen where those issues are insidious have led to serious incidents and accidents. Yeah, and you know what? They don't take into consideration when at the manufacturing level that you're looking at pristine systems to a brand new system. But when you get into the airplane, that system may not be pristine. There may have been some problems with it over the year, and there's been some changes made to it. Some of them that don't appear in the manual, just somebody did who had a good understanding of the system made some changes on his own, made the system work, but they're not recorded anywhere. You know, you can't see them sometimes. It's just a tough place to be today with all that electronics. 
So when we look at organizational culture, safety culture, it is so broad scoped. And for the safety board, because you and I have both been there, yes, they have to change because the NTSB has an expectation that if there are deficiencies in a safety culture of an airline or a maintenance facility, that they should change if those deficiencies had some sort of cause or contributing factor to an accident. And the board's got to change. They've got to change the way they do business because right now, the number of accidents, they are far behind the number of accidents they haven't responded to out in the field, especially on the general aviation side. They're going to lose a lot of valuable information. The recommendations aren't going to be there. And oh, by the way, they aren't there now. I can't, I think in the last 10 years, they put out maybe five general aviation recommendations of substance. You know, you're going to lose all the good stuff. And if you don't have the accurate fact, condition, and circumstances, then you can't accurately write a safety recommendation to enhance aviation safety because you don't know what all the real facts are. And the only way to get those is through acts investigation. And so, yes, everybody needs to basically do a self-examination. What's the culture? What's the culture of the organization I work in? I don't care if you work in an accounting office. You know, there is an organizational culture there. There is a safety culture there. If there's sexual harassment, if there's, you know, belittlement, if there's just an atmosphere that is not workable, that's the organizational culture. And we can all learn from this and enhance our respective organizations. And even as a single pilot, now that we're talking about it, I don't consciously think about it, but I'm going to start. I know what my limitations are. I know what I will and will not do in an airplane. And I'm, I'm not going to go out and put myself at risk or family and friends or colleagues or anybody else. And that's an unwritten policy, but I abide by it because I just know I don't need that. I don't need that headache, John. <laughs> Yeah, but how many times have we seen that self-imposed pressure that comes because I have to be in in uh, Detroit because my daughter is getting graduating from college? We just we had an accident like that not too long ago. Well, that's why that's why I count my friends at United Airlines because they're my plan B if I choose not to to move myself in an airplane. Yeah, it's good be, to be able to step back and say I'm not taking that risk. I'm not. I often describe risk to people as climbing a ladder. And how many rungs up a ladder do you want to take in risk? Because when you fall from that ladder and you're up five steps, you're going to get hurt. If you fall from one step, you might sprain an ankle or something. But you got to measure the risk and don't brush it aside. you got to carefully weigh it before you make a decision to go do something. Yes, indeed. Well... I think we have run that uh, to ground pretty well. I just want to say that it's always good to talk to you. I'm glad that you're now uh, bulletproof almost against COVID. Yeah, a few more weeks. Someday, uh, hopefully in the near future, I'll get one of those COVID shots as well. But till then, I'll I'll be you know practicing my safety protocols that uh, wash my hands and gargle and wear a mask and do all these things that and actually breathe clean air. So that's the good thing about being in Colorado, because the majority of our air is pretty clean, so I can't complain. But it is always good to talk to you, John, and I, again, look forward to hopefully being in the studio with you soon. All right, and I'd like to remind everybody that if you're looking for insurance, uh, Avemco sponsors us, and 
we wouldn't accept them as a sponsor, except Greg has good good experience with them. He's used them on his own airplanes and seem to be a fine, upstanding company. So if you're looking for insurance, give them a call, 888-879-0389, and mention Flight Safety Detectives for a 5% discount. With that, Greg, I'll let you say the last word this time. Well, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners, as I always do. We, John and I greatly appreciate uh, your feedback, your input, your suggestions. And uh, I want to thank those of you who we haven't um, really got it together yet, but I want to give a, a big shout out to the people that are contributing to the show to help offset the cost of producing this show. You guys uh, are a valuable resource for us as far as asking questions or providing suggestions for shows. And so we're trying to incorporate a lot of those. And again, we really appreciate the contributions that you make financially to the show to help us offset the production costs. So thank you very much. If you're new to the show or you have questions, comments, concerns, you like, you don't like, you don't like me and John or whatever, that's fine. We always want to hear from you because, uh, some of it we find quite entertaining. So you can always contact us via our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. That comes right to me and John. We review it all. I usually try to send back a little comment uh, and that kind of stuff or answer the questions. Sometimes I'm not as timely as I want, but I will get back to you. And I know John does too. So again, we really appreciate it. So definitely stay in touch. And since John has given me the last word, it's always, of course, not only be safe in your personal life, but if you're going to get into an airplane or any other machine that has wings, an envelope that fills with hot air, or wings that go around in circles in a helicopter, regardless of what it is you're flying, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.